This is Ving Rames. You're listening to Inspirational Decency, Episode 482, Tapeworm's Love Song. Hello. Or should I say, hi. My name? Rather presumptuous of you to ask. Especially considering the smell emanating from your alligator skin nudie suit. But I suppose I will humor you just this once. My name is Starling Galaxy Explosion, the first in a series of seven. I can only assume that, having heard my name for the first time, your jaw has unhinged and fallen like a freight elevator to the floor, your tongue unfurling the way a red carpet unspools before a king or queen as he or she attends the NAACP Kids' Choice Awards. A glorious name it is, indeed, doubling not only as the moniker on my birth certificate, but also as the name of my retro-psychedelic cover band. In any case, you may also be wondering why you are hearing my silken voice of the finest gossamer. In time, dear listener, your question shall be answered in time. But first, a selection from my eight-hour sound art piece, The Penis Decalogue Part 5, The Perturbed Protuberance. <clears throat> me, 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 me. I can feel it arising, the shameful throb of generations. Man-child, read you not the signs posted along the engorged base? The time of inflamed ascension is upon us. Retire to the satin encasement. Wait, what's that, dear listener? You'd rather I come out and tell you the purpose of my substituting for your brain-rattled simian of a host during this opening monologue? I suppose I can indulge you candy-fingered urchins yet again. Your tragically inept host, Darren Springer, son of Claudio and Rainey, brother of Stultz, and cousin of Big Peanut, has, in one of the only sensible decisions he has ever made, in a life that has so far resembled a Rob Schneider movie played at half speed, decided to recruit none other than myself, a highly esteemed radio critic, to deliver an on-air appraisal of this program. I suppose I may as well deliver my verdict now without delaying. Much as a parent might rip off his child's band-aid quickly rather than slowly, so that he may delight in the sound of painful ripping. My evaluation system is divided into four distinct categories, and they are as follows. Number one, content. Each of the eight previous episodes of this program typically feature four written segments. First is a monologue, during which Mr. Springer affects a character as unconvincing and cliched as the paternity suit filed against me by Kristen Chenoweth. There are two additional sketches, performed either by Mr. Springer alone, or with a tragically enabling friend or two, that fail to achieve the depth and sophistication of a damp mustache. To wit, a recent sketch depicted Batman and Robin in place of Wayne and Garth doing a cable access show in a basement. The name of this segment? Bruce Wayne's World. One can simply feel the mediocrity wafting into one's lungs and clogging them with creative fatigue. Then he ends the show with some form of improvised rambling about some crushingly banal topic. To the question, what could be worse than this man's writing, one can definitively answer, his interminable droning about eating chocolate oranges while watching lawn bowling on cable access. Overall content grade, D. Number 2. Performance. Mr. Springer's voice can best be described as resembling a boorish yet narcoleptic Jonathan Goldstein. His nasal delivery is so logy and soporific that one can practically sense his throat rusting as the words drip forth. 
The only reason this program receives a passing grade in this category is because the featured players somehow managed to acquit themselves admirably in sketches written by a man who seems to have the wit and energy of a Colorado marathon runner after a 15-mile jaunt. Overall performance grade, C- plus one and a half Corkies, a grade named after my beloved literary agent, Corky Fricassee. Number three, music. Mr. Springer plays approximately 10 minutes or so of whatever useless debris stains his iPod, like pools of sweat on a Bavarian tenor's top hat lining. In episode 3, the man subjected his listeners to a 10-minute cover of King of Wishful Thinking by Go West, as performed by Jeff Beck's angry grandmother. Not as good as it sounds. Overall music grade, F. And finally, number 4, editing. Mr. Springer is apparently so incompetent at recording his segments that there sometimes isn't a single word spoken on this program that doesn't sound like it was recorded separately from the rest. As you can imagine, this is very disorienting. Overall editing grade, D-10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, Blast off! Hi, and welcome to Screensaver, the local show that gives you movie news from around the globe. Keep in mind that we are not a show devoted to screensavers. That show is tomorrow night at 8, and it's called The Silver Screen. I'm fully aware of how confusing that is, but we cannot switch names, because that would involve talking to Jeff, uh, the host of that show, and I, and I cannot do that. The, the explanation for that is a long story involving a briefcase full of drug money and a 400-pound Mexican wrestler named El Steno. So let's just drop it. Anyway, this week... Hey! Hey, I'm here. Everyone, shut up. I'm here. Uh, oh, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Someone, someone appears to have stormed into the studio for some reason. Uh, excuse me, what... Oh, my God! Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Drink it in, gulp it down, and sweat it out. It's me. Ladies and gentlemen, I- I'm honored to have Lynn Beveridge, who is not only widely considered to be the, the biggest female action star in-, in the world, but who just happens to be a native of our fair city, uh, making a surprise appearance on my show. Miss Beveridge, thank- thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, you should be thanking me. Um, I, I-, I, just-, I just did. Oh, good. And thank you for allowing me to allow you to be here. Uh, certainly. Uh, now, now, Lynn, what, what films would you say you're most famous for? Oh, probably the Punch Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kick Trilogy. Right. And the Gouge movies one through five. Out of all those movies, would you say you have a personal favorite? If I had to pick one, I'd say Gouge 2, The Eyes Have It, or at least they did before they were gouged out. That is, that is a good one. Now, Lynn, would you say growing up in Kingston made you what you are today? Well, I like to think of myself as, like, a dictator. I'm like a dictator of dreams. I make these movies, people watch them, and dream about what they could be. So it's like I'm telling them what to dream. Kind of like, you'll never be me, but you should want to be me, so you should try as hard as you can to be me, because at least then they can say, well, at least I tried and failed and got badly hurt, instead of living my life all happy and bored. That's very inspirational. 
that's what I keep saying. And you know, any good dictator needs someone to grind under her boot. And that's what Kingston is for me. It's the worm that I grind into the mud while I laugh and chew on some porcupine jerky. Uh, indeed, your hatred of Kingston is well known. Uh, in fact, you once tried to, to pay to have the entire city demolished. I did. Uh, when was that again? When I was eight years old. I raised $15 by selling lemonade and bowls of creamed corn. People thought I was joking. I even took it to the mayor. That cretin laughed in my face and tousled my hair. But I showed him, because 15 years later, he died of old age. Hmm. So, uh, what brings you back to Kingston now? Well, I'm really going all out to promote my new movie, Backshooter. Backshooter? Sounds intense. It is. I've got the title role, and we've also got Matt LeBlanc as my husband, Detective Johnny Update. Ooh. James Cromwell as himself, as an alien. Wow, that sounds hilarious. Why? And rounding things out, we've got Surrey Cruz. Wow, uh, Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes' daughter, she's in this? Yeah, but she doesn't know that, so maybe don't tell anyone. So, what is Backshooter about? Well, I play a disgraced ex-cop turned renegade who specializes in shooting people in the back. Why does your character do that? Uh, because it's easier. Have you ever tried shooting someone in the front? They can see you. That's not fair. Of, of course. So anyway, she's pursuing this big female drug kingpin named Alvarado, who made out with her husband without asking her first. I, I, I'm sorry, without a asking her first? Yeah, well, they have an open relationship, but they have to be upfront with each other. And so my character sees this not asking thing as a real betrayal. Well, uh, then shouldn't she be mad at her husband? She is, but they make up pretty quickly near the beginning. Their relationship's been a bit rocky, but they really love each other. You can see that they've had a lot more happy moments than unhappy. And you get a clear sense of this from what you're shown of their relationship. Yeah, kind of. Well, no, not really. That's more just like a backstory I created for them. Hmm. So, wait a minute. The entire movie is just this, like, mild love triangle where the main character is just kind of annoyed that this person made out with her husband? Oh no, there's more going on than that. See, it turns out that her husband had been recruited by Alvarado as a mule carrying heroin across the border. But he was like a double, triple agent and was tipping me off about it the whole time. So, is, is that a twist that comes up later in the movie? Nah, not really. That's just some backstory I made up. Wait, that's backstory too? Well, yeah. As an actor, you've got to make up motives for your characters. Otherwise, nothing would make sense. Okay, okay, yeah. But if all of this apparently important plot information is just backstory, then how does the movie make any sense? Well, you'd have to take that up with the screenwriter. Who's the screenwriter? Uh, I am. Well, uh, then let me ask you. How much... What percentage of the plot is just backstory? Mm, some percent. Well, how much of the plot is actually depicted on screen? Um, the majority, uh, minus five storylines. Well, so, so how many scenes are actually in this movie? About four. About four? Well, three. So how long is this movie? It's 90 minutes. What? Wait a minute. What, what is going on in these scenes? Well, I find out that my husband made out with Alvarado. I forgive him pretty quickly. Then in the next scene, I go to look for Alvarado, but guys keep jumping in front of me and trying to kill me. Uh, her henchmen. Yeah, probably. So I have to kill them. Let me guess, by shooting them in the back? Yeah. Wait, how did you... 
Oh, right. Never mind. And then eventually I find Alvarado and we have our showdown. That takes about an hour. How is that possible? What goes on in that scene? Well, we do a lot of improvising. We talk for a while about where to get good yarn in Houston, which is where the movie is set, probably. And then you kill her at the end, right? By shooting her in the back? Yeah. Wait, how did you... Oh, right. Never mind. So, so what possessed you to write a movie like this? Well, I'm sick of doing movies where there's some dumb character arc or conflict or whatever. I'll admit, I don't care about plot or whatever. I'm sick about having to wait to win. I just wanted to spend an entire movie winning, the way America always does. Uh, okay, so about the cast then. You've got LeBlanc as your husband, uh, James Cromwell. Actually, now that I think about it, Cromwell got cut from the final version. He was good, but we had to cut the movie down to get an NC-17 rating. Wait, 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 wait. You had to cut the movie down to get an NC-17 what was the original rating? The ratings board initially gave us a CT-94, which stands for Culturally Toxic for Anyone Under the Age of 94. Usually, when a movie gets a CT-94, all prints are either burned or thrown down an open sewer, in the hopes of killing whatever race of half-men, half-goats might be dwelling there. Interesting. Now, who does Surrey Cruz play? Um, her role is crucial. Wait, wait a minute. Please don't tell me she plays the drug kingpin. I can neither confirm nor deny that she plays the drug kingpin. Wink, wink. Oh, that is... Oh, that, that's ridiculous. Why would you cast her in that role? Well, she auditioned. She, she auditioned? Yeah, and I liked what I saw. What did you see? Her parents writing me a check for $12 million. Oh, that's just sleazy. They bought you off. Well, that's a sleazy way of putting it. I prefer to say I sold myself to them. Why would they even want her to play a drug dealer? They wanted to build her range as an actress, I guess. And I gotta say, Suri's performance is really scary. And by scary, I mean sad. And by her performance, I mean her life. Oh, man. Uh, but hey, I haven't told you my catchphrase yet. You want to hear it? Sure. Okay. Back shooter. Guess who's back? I'm about to shoot. Hmm. Well, that is catchy. Uh, by the way, how did you get in here? Y you need a pass card to get in at this time of night. Oh, I stole one from your guard outside after I overpowered him. What? What are, you, what are you talking about? What guard? Your guard. You know, the guy outside in the blue parka and the white toque. Guard? Oh my god, that wasn't a guard, that was Alan. He, he's the host of the show that comes after mine. Oh, I guess that explains why he seemed like such a bad guard. He had his back turned to me and was kind of just talking on his phone. So what did you do to him? I shot him in the back. Oh, my God. He might be alive, though. How many times did you shoot him? Twelve-ish, eleventy-something. I got afraid and excited. Oh, my God. Well, uh, I guess we'll take a, a quick break for some commercials right now. Uh, you probably won't be hearing the show Stifled Voices tonight, uh, because its host, Alan Milken, is uh, almost certainly dead. And to think, he was only one day away from retirement. Really? Well, no, I've just always wanted to say that. And now, for another edition of Half-Remembered Theater. In this installment, a man partially remembers the plot to E.T. the Extraterrestrial. So, of course, you know E.T., like, it was a very popular movie. Um, like, one of the more popular of all time. It was, uh, 
something like the top five um, highest grossing movies of all time, that kind of thing. And uh, and so at the end, like what happens is, um, so you've got the alien E.T., and that stands for extraterrestrial. And so he's been living with Elliot, who is the boy that found him after he landed. I don't remember if he crashed or if he visited Earth to collect things or learn things. But um, so the scientists have, they almost have caught him and he was almost dead. And then Elliot stole him. Um, I think he, uh, like he didn't know how to drive, but he stole a Jeep and crashed it through these uh, padlocked uh, iron fences. And he stole E.T. from the scientist guys who were going to kill him. And, uh, and so he and then Drew Barrymore's sister, uh, they decided to uh, just pedal away on their bikes. And eventually they pedaled so hard that uh, they ran into a river. And, uh, well, okay, here my, my memory's a little shaky here, but I think what happens is that as uh, E.T. is drowning... He looks up at Elliot, who has managed to like climb to the shore, and he's like, I always wanted to love you, but you wouldn't let me. Let this be a lesson to your people. I have died for your sins. And then you just, he die. he goes down under the water, and you see this gurgle, and then uh, Elliot hears in the distance, um, I'll never forgive you. I think that's how it ends. Um, but I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but I liked it. They took her name. Shut up, Alvarado! They took her reputation. Alvarado, I told you to shut up! They took her dignity. Hey! Hey! Alvarado, I'm over here, dummy. They had her up against the wall. Hey, know who I hate? Alvarado. Oh, hi, Alvarado. I didn't see you standing there. Oh, wait. I'm lying. I totally did see you standing there. I hate you. And when you're up against the wall... Hey, Alvarado, here's your anti-Valentine. It's what I give to people I hate. The only thing to do is fight back? No, no, please. Don't shoot me in the back! Sorry, pal. It's too late for you to back out. Lynn Beveridge is back shooter. Guess who's back? I'm about to shoot. Rated NC-17. In theaters March 18th. None of the scenes in this trailer are actually in the movie. This is Ving Rames. I don't have any particular reason to be talking to you right now. I was just wondering if anyone had some cream soda. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so few reliable guides to proper behavior in these modern, contemporary, nowadays times, except for this particular program, which will always steer you in the direction of the behavioral North Star. 
here are some tips to get you through this morass of hatred, violence, and chunky peanut butter we call life. Rule number one, if you encounter Tim Allen in the woods, do not attempt to shake his rough-hewn hand as he saunters towards you, his overalls drooping, the wine stains on his forehead growing ever redder in the noonday sun, the drool emanating from his lips like the virgin spring in a Swedish folk tale. No, my friends, run, sprints, skip quickly away from the scene of your harrowing encounter, and make sure if you report this to a park ranger that you be fairly generous in your description of his calf muscles. Because Tim Allen has had a hard, incredibly successful life. That is one rule that you can stick on your... I'm actually not going to finish that sentence. I had something in mind, but uh, I'm going to let you finish that thought yourselves. Because, as they say, the mind is far more sinister than the lips. And when I say they, I guess I mean comedian Norm Crosby. He is the guy who will often slip malapropisms into his act. Which is interesting because my uncle Norm often slips correct English usage into his scattering of vaguely demented gibberish. Does that make him the anti-Norm Crosby? Or, in a way, doesn't that make him the fulfillment of all that is good inside of us? I am quickly losing all oxygen to my brain, but before that happens, I want to thank Amanda Balsas for her help with this week's episode. Truly, hers is a spirit that cannot be crushed under the wheels of a Volkswagen ice cream truck. Is that, is that a thing? A Volkswagen ice cream truck? Pro- well, you could sell ice cream out of any truck. But I don't know, I guess you'd have to... You'd, you just need a cooler. Um, and also, it, it wouldn't last nearly as long, I guess, if you don't have the full refrigerated truck. Um, in any case, if you have a... If, if any, you can think of a way for me to sell ice cream out of the uh, passenger side of a one of those two-seater motorcycles, you know the ones, uh, then give me a call here at 633-084-D-RON, and uh, maybe we can get in on this together, this particular business venture. Uh, I will, of course, be receiving my customary 47% of all merchandise t-shirt sales, and 
any uh, spinning top uh, spin-offs. That possibly made even less sense than what I said before. Uh, so in any case, I will bid you good night, and may God bless, and ice cream. <laughs>